Well, let us turn our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3 once again. Hebrews chapter 3. As we continue to be ministered to by this first century sermon. And I must confess to you that today's message is a difficult one to preach. It's difficult because even in preparation of it, it's very soul searching. It's very penetrating with the reality of how we just sung. We truly are prone to wonder, all of us. We come here to verses 7, really to the end of the chapter to help us set the context and understanding the present tense of the admonition that's being given. And so let's just back up to verse number 7, the beginning of the use of Psalm 95. Remember Psalm 95 is what's being communicated here in verses 7 through 11. And let's read it all the way down to verse 19. Hear the word of the Lord. Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, Today, if ye will hear His voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation, in the day of temptation in the wilderness. When your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years, wherefore I was grieved with that generation. And I said, They do always err in their heart. They have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. While it is said today, if ye will hear His voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation. For some when they had heard, did provoke, albeit not all that came out of Egypt by Moses. But with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear he that they should not enter his rest, but to them that believed not? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. And may the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of His Holy Word. Beloved, the Gospel, or in the original tongue, the euangelium, it carries with it the concept or the meaning of good tidings. The euangelium, the Gospel, carries with it the idea of happy tidings, glad news. And among the main tenets of this glad news, this 
happy tidings that the gospel gives is the rest that is promised to all those who are burdened by the sobering reality that they have transgressed against the holy law of their Creator and their God. And that they can find rest and they can be relieved of this condemning burden under the blessed promise that upon Christ they are forgiven and shall have eternal life. That they will not be judged on that last day for the transgressions that their conscience declares against them. This promised rest as it's being used here in chapter 3, it carries with it the concept of the calming of winds. The coming in after a long day of work and gathering around with your family and resting after all of the toils of a hard day. That's what's offered in the good news, the glad news of the Gospel. We've learned that it's authored This gospel, this plan to give such a rest, it's authored by God. And it's made certain through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this rest, this promised rest, is really the overarching theme of the uh, chapter number 3, verse 7, all the way down to chapter 4, verse 12. In other words, the inspired writer to these first century Jewish converts, he's seeking to construct an argument in a sermonic fashion, utilizing Old Testament analogies as he did last week with Psalm 95 to keep these first century Christians from entertaining any ideas that there was something other than the Lord Jesus Christ, His work upon the cross, the gospel that they had received that could ever provide the rest that their souls so desperately needed and so desperately craved for spiritual soul rest, that I belong to God, that the toils are over, that the struggle is going to be soon finished. Well, what about our own context, brothers and sisters, in the modern church? Well, if the truth be told, we too can become like these first century Christian believers. And as the old hymn goes, our hearts are prone to wonder as well, aren't they? We are constantly faced by enemies of Christ's rest from within and from without. And it's for this reason that I want to follow up last Sunday's message regarding King David's warning to his own generation through the use of Psalm 95, which is here in our text today, with the message that I one entitled, Do You Still Believe? Do You Still Believe? Or could be titled, The Peril of Giving Up Belief. Do You Still Believe? Or The Peril of Giving Up Belief. Well, we're only going to deal with verse number 12 today. Verse number 12. And how are we going to consider our topic of whether or not we still believe or have we given up belief? I propose to, as you see in your sermon notes, that we first consider the exhortation following the use of Psalm 95, how it's opened up and how it's made personal. And then we spend much time in understanding the peril of unbelief, the evil of unbelief, and seek to unfold exactly 
what is being communicated here by the inspired author. Now we see here in verse number 12, immediately the exhortation of Psalm 95 that we learned much about last week. It's it's opened up, isn't it? He says in the text, take heed. Some of your modern translations translates it, beware. Oftentimes in the New Testament, this Greek phrase is translated a majority of times as see, look upon. Here's this warning from the Old Testament Jews in the wilderness that I just communicated to you that all of you as Jews would have been so familiar with. Now see, beware, take a hold of the meaning and the significance of their transgressions and their unbelief. Apparently, these first century believers with the meaning of this word, to look at, heed, beware. They must have thought that the rest that they were promised and given to them in Christ was one that they could play fast and loose with. And so he's telling them, beware, take heed. I think that there's an indication we could gather from chapter 4, verse 10, that their old ways of thinking and regarding how they could be accepted into God's rest by their own performance or their own works was threatening to come into their assemblies and corrupt the purity of the gospel. And some were tempting to go back to that old covenant arrangement or at least seriously consider going back. And thereby they would be finally rejecting Christ. They would be finally rejecting His gospel. And so this preacher is saying, wake up, beware, take heed. Just as he did in verse 1, you remember he said, consider. Here again, he's calling them to this duty, which is not to be lightly set aside through unconcern or laziness, or as he describes in chapter 5, verse 11, received with dullness of hearing. He's saying, don't miss the significance of Psalms 95 and what I just laid out for you. Take heed. The seriousness, I think, of this language that's translated take heed comes to the surface really for us and clarifies for us what he's communicating, the the, the thrust of how he's communicating, the tone in which he's communicating it. And as you've seen in sermon notes from 1 Corinthians 10.12, the same Greek phrases used there, and it's translated take heed. Or the Apostle Paul said to a church that needed much admonishment, Wherefore, let him that thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. That's the tone in which he's using it here in this letter. I like how one old Puritan described this attitude of someone who perhaps is dull of hearing when there's such a serious matter laid on the table regarding their spiritual welfare and the rest that they possessed in Christ. I've given it to your notes. Listen how he describes this sort of attitude. The person that walks in the midst of snares and who walks in the midst of serpents and goes on confidently without consideration of his own danger as if his paths were all smooth and safe will one time or other become entangled or bitten. Blind confidence He goes on to say, in a course of profession, as if the whole 
of it were a road without any dangers. What's he say? You see it in your notes? Is a ruining principle. In other words, church, what he just laid out in verses 7 through 11 by using Psalm 95 was not an empty warning. And the duty here, we notice, is universal to everyone in the church because he says, Take heed, what? Brethren. Take heed, brethren. All of us here, no matter how long we have been converted, been walking with the Lord, studying, memorizing our Bibles, all of us need to hear this warning of the seriousness of unbelief creeping in to our churches and personally into our lives. Take heed, brethren. And now he opens up the exhortation with this serious call. And now he makes it, he makes it personal and he makes it universal, referring to them as his brethren. I think that we must acknowledge the fact how that this warning is made personal here by referring to them as brethren. In other words, we would be correct in assuming, and it is an assumption, that he would have spent much time with this group of people. He knew them. He loved them. And so he's coming to them with this warning because he cares for their souls. He's telling them the truth as his fellow Christianos, follower of Christ, because he really loves them. There's even a chance perhaps he was there to watch them be baptized. Maybe he witnessed to one of them and actually actually was part and instrumental in God's scheme and his in God's means of faith to bring conversion about in some of their lives. He regarded them as his fellow and his brothers, his fellow members in the household of God, fellow family members of the church. I think there's a tendency of us often to lose sight of this biblical fact that we are fellow Christians. We are brethren in the local house of God. And not only should we care about one another's physical needs, the physical welfare of how we're doing, but much more importantly, as we see exhibited here in this warning to take heed, brethren, we see here much more we should be concerned about one another's spiritual welfare. A passage, I think, that brings to the surface uh, the reality of our spiritual kinship with one another. We're not just mutual acquaintances here, guys, when we come together in this spiritual act like we had uh, talked about last week, which is one of the most amazing, astonishing things we do all week. You and I are spiritual brothers and sisters. What brings this to reality, their surface, I think the clearest is when Jesus, you remember, you have it in your notes from Luke chapter 8, verse 21, when during his earthly ministry, his biological mother and his uh, brothers were outside of this place where he was teaching and they're trying to press in and they couldn't because the crowds were so great. Notice what Jesus taught them, which really demonstrates the significance of what I'm telling you here today, that we are brothers and sisters in the house of God and ought to be concerned as this writer was for our spiritual welfare one to another. Jesus said, when they said, your mother and your brother are outside trying to get in, what's Jesus say? He said to them, my mother and my brethren are these which hear the word of God and do it. He was amplifying the fact, wasn't he? 
That we are a family here in the local house of God. The writer of Hebrews certainly appreciated this truth regarding how that we are family, how that we are a household of Christ, as he mentioned in verse number 6. But sadly, too many times in the modern uh, church context, there's this indifference to this real biblical truth that we are brothers and sisters and ought to be concerned for each other's spiritual welfare. What's the reason for this? Well, I've given you three reasons I believe that are the roots of spiritual indifference to the reality that we ought to genuinely be praying for and caring for one another's spiritual welfare. We are a family. We follow the Lord Jesus Christ and our Heavenly Father. And we ought to be watching for one another. We ought to be caring for one another's spiritual welfare. It ought to grieve me when I see someone absent from the local gathering. Or when I see when someone withdrawing or or, or beginning to exhibit things that perhaps is a clue. Got to be careful not to be too quick in reacting, but could be a clue of drifting. And I ought to pick up the phone. I ought to invite the person for a cup of coffee. Let's get in and share one another's hearts with one another. How are you spiritually doing? Because I care. I truly care. Not that I want to write down on my list and keep a journal of all your secret faults. No, because between me and you, just me and you, I want us to hold one another accountable to our Savior, His gospel, and help us both grow and to mature with one another. This was the power we saw exhibited in the New Testament church. There wasn't this isolation from one another that we see so often in the modern church context. Well, perhaps some of the root reasons ought to be considered by us. Could it be, as you see in your notes, there are in some a self-pride? For some, due to their own selfish pride, very simply will not allow anyone in their lives. Why? Well, because it's a mess. And guess what? That's what the church of God is consistent of. A bunch of people who are spiritually at times messed up. And we don't want people to end that mess. Because we're fearful that they'll judge us. Well, fearful that they'll begin to withdraw and distance themselves from us. And God forbid if you ever go into a mess that you would say, well, this is just going to be too involved. I can't get involved with this. God forbid you would ever have that attitude because then you're going to fall into the third category of why we tend to not understand or appreciate this spiritual kinship with this writer of Hebrews exhibiting by giving them this warning. It could be that Some of us fall into what is in the second category, what I call the rat race. There is a reality, let's just face it, guys, of the ever, uh, the never ending, you could say, busyness of life, the rat race. And it seems as though we just simply don't have much time because there's too much on our plate to become involved or concerned with one another's spiritual rest as brothers and sisters, right? And, And all of us can get wrapped up in that. We have children we have uh, honey to-do lists we have our vocational responsibilities i mean this is a reality but let us be careful not to let these present lawful uh, reasonable realities ever shut out beloved uh, this aspect of caring for one another's spiritual welfare and then there's the third one which i mentioned already of why we tend to not uh, or, or why we tend to be indifferent at times to the aspect of caring for one another's spiritual welfare in the church as a family is because it's just too messy. 
It's closely related to the rat race. There's this tendency to observe that in order to become involved in the spiritual welfare of another brother or sister's life, it's just going to be a lot of work and even possibly expose me to a messy situation which may cause me some levels of stress or emotional challenges. And so therefore, I see they're kind of struggling. I notice they haven't been to church. You know, I think that there's a way that I could help, but it's just too messy and it's going to cause me too much emotional investment to do so. Well, none of these things, brothers and sisters, prevented this inspired writer to come to them at a point where they needed help the most because they were venturing down a path that very well could have been irretrievable. Unbelief. Practical unbelief. And so he rolls up his sleeves. He takes much time and he invests in them And furthermore, I would say that if he had the abilities which we have today of getting in a car and driving 30 minutes, an hour or two hours, he would have been at their church the following Sunday to say, what's going on? Let's pray. Let's fast. Let's get back to the basics of the gospel. In this acknowledging them as his spiritual kin, his spiritual brothers, once again, He's exhibiting a reasonable demonstration of charity toward them by identifying and referring to them as they profess to be. Right? He's giving them the benefit of the doubt. It's not a judgment of the reality of their identity by their profession because that will only be known, as we see a few short verses later, by their perseverance. So when he says, I'm referring to you as my spiritual brother, I believe you to be my spiritual brother. You're drifting. I love you. I want to be involved. I'm here to help. I'm retrieving you back. We're not to take it as, well, they profess to be, so therefore they are. Because that's not how he's intended it to, to be. That's why he has the admonitions. Because there happens to be false professors amongst the church of God. And this is why he begins to zero in in the latter half of the verse, after he opens up the exhortation, take heed, it's for all of you, my brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief resulting in the departing from the living God. So now let us consider the center of this exhortation that he wants them to avoid. This heart that he describes as an evil heart of unbelief. Now we learned last week by observing how and why the writer to the Hebrews was using Psalms 95. He was using it because it would have been something they would have been very familiar with. And also in a very short narrative of the history of their ancient ancestors, there is a snapshot that concisely be described, succinctly described, as a hardness and a callous of heart. And so he shows them that in Psalms 95. And now he's taken up that warning as if it were his own, originally penned by King David. And he calls them, and he's calling us today, beloved, to watch against the rising up of unbelief within our hearts. And he describes this as an evil. 
Now you have in your notes from one New Testament scholar that where this phrase unbelief is used, it's to be considered in the language what we would say a genitive cause. So it's the root cause of beginning to drift or depart from the living God. He says, as you have in your notes, this denotes the principle or the efficient cause rendering the heart so evil that it should or it will depart from the living God. And so this evil heart of unbelief is what's at the center of this exhortation and that he's placing before their consideration today to take heed of. The obvious focus, therefore, at this point of his exhortation is nothing less for them to have an examination of the state of their hearts. Do they still believe? They profess that they do. But do they truly still believe? Or has some of them, like their ancient ancestors, cultivated, fostered, coddled, and now possess an evil heart of unbelief? I believe that it's exactly these sort of scriptures here that are penetrating. They are intense. They are sober cause of self-examination which run against the grain of modern day evangelical culture which has fostered and indeed has promoted a doctrine known as easy believism. This is just a term that we use to describe the very serious heretical danger of having a profession of faith outwardly without any real saving faith accompanying that profession. We hear of missionaries from other countries that are coming back here to the States and telling the churches, stop sending your missionaries across the world with this easy Belizeism gospel. It's heretical. It's cancerous. It's a plague spreading across the lands. As noted earlier, this is a universal call to the entire church who are all subject to sin's deceitfulness. Not one of us in here is exempt from the deceitfulness of sin. And so each one of us, every boy, every girl, every man, every woman, needs to take heed, needs to beware of a heart of unbelief. Now what's important, very important for us today at this point in our text, is to ensure that we do not misconstrued the writer's use of this term, the evil heart of unbelief, in the present context of him warning these people who have professed faith. We want to make sure we understand exactly how he is doing it. If we don't properly understand it, if we misconstrued it, not only are we going to misunderstand the writer's original argument, but we could begin to take this and apply it in other situations and contexts that it wouldn't properly be applied to. So what is he talking about here when he says, take heed that you don't have um, an evil heart of unbelief? Well, to help us with this, we need to first understand that when the Bible speaks of unbelief, as you see in your sermon notes, 
it could be referring to two distinct categories of unbelief. And if we wrongly understand him talking about one category or the other, particularly the first one, we're going to miss the mark of what he's teaching here in the text. The first category when the Bible talks about unbelief, as you have it in your sermon notes, is known as negative unbelief. Or you could say without unbelief. Brothers in the church, you go to jump your batteries and your pickup trucks, what do you do? You hook up the black cable to the negative Right? It doesn't have any power. What has the power? The positive. Well, the first category of unbelief is negative unbelief. And this is describing those who have never been granted the means of faith through the preaching of the gospel. Or in other words, it's those who have never heard. It's negative. It's void. They've never heard the gospel. Right? So they have, of course, a negative unbelief. They've never even heard it preached. Such individuals, such unbelievers who have a heart of unbelief could be described in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 23. You remember the Apostle Paul there dealing again with the Corinthian church. Even though they were a mess, they were blood-bought disciples of Christ and he loved them, he was investing in them and he was trying to get them back on the right track. Remember what he said? He goes, if everybody in there is speaking it in some unknown language and it's a bunch of confusion and chaos and an unbeliever were to come in, he would be confused, right? He would think that there was a lot of disorder. Well, that kind of unbeliever, that person who possesses a heart of unbelief is someone who's never even heard the gospel. They can't help but unbelieve, right? They've never been told the truth. But the second category of unbelief that Scripture refers to, which I believe, I'm just going to tip my hand here, I believe that this is the category of unbelief that's being referred to by our writer today, is privative Unbelief, And you have it in your notes. Privative unbelief. Privative is just a derivative of the Latin meaning to deprive. So privative unbelief. This is true of those who have had the means of faith given to them. They have been ministered to through the gospel, uh, through the preaching of the gospel. And they have, in this category of privative unbelief, two people would be in there. There'd be two types of people. They've heard the gospel. They've had this blessed means of faith. Perhaps they've grown up in a Christian home. Perhaps they've got a co-worker. Perhaps they've got a family member. Perhaps they've met someone out in street evangelism. They have had the gospel plainly communicated to them, but they reject it. That's the first type of the person. A person who refuses to believe. Even when the gospel is presented with its commands and its demands that you are a sinner in need of a Savior and there's only one hope for you, it's Jesus, repent and believe. And they say, no, I'm not going to believe. Well, that's privative. That's, that's privative unbelief. That's unbelief that is being given the gospel and because of the nature of their own remaining corruptions in flesh, they say, I'm going to withdraw from that gospel. No, I will not accept it. The root of this kind of unbelief is, of course, the original depravity of man's nature, which has in and of itself, the Bible clearly teaches, no spiritual ability toward righteousness. And indeed, Paul teaches very clearly, that individual found in their natural state hates God. I give in your sermon notes many places you could go to prove this. But for our sake of time, I just have to list the scripture proofs 
to validate what I just said. But in addition to the effects of this person, this first type of person who has this primitive unbelief, which is evil, in addition to their original sin and their depravity, there's many other things that are combined with their uncircumcised heart, which causes, indeed ensures, that they will reject the gospel. As you see in your notes, there is their own prejudices. These are prejudices that are fabricated within one's own carnal mind, which they have entertained upon many corrupt principles, or prejudice informed by the powers of darkness in this world system. They've developed prejudice which in a way helps or justifies their own carnal, natural, innate hatred toward God. Whether it's Richard Dawkins or it's someone else. You see, they've allowed other things, sometimes fostered within their own self, to prejudice, prejudice themselves against the hearing of the gospel. Then there, of course, is in this first type of person, that refuses to believe, that has an evil heart of unbelief, there is the love of self or the love of pet sins that they hold dear. And they're too dear for one to have to give up or to begin to starve or kill as is demanded and called for in picking up one's cross and following Jesus. They hear the gospel And because they have no spiritual ability to respond to the gospel, they are depraved in their nature, in connection with, they reason with their own faculties of their mind, that in order to do this, in order to follow this, I will have to stop A, B, C, D, E, and F. And it's just not worth it. I don't think it's worth that kind of sacrifice. And then there is willful ignorance in this first type of person who holds a heart of unbelief where they are delighted by those who want to imagine as if they will never face an eternal judge. Willful ignorance. Some people, beloved, and I think this is a vast majority of people that I come in contact with, they simply just don't want to think about eternity. Isn't it astonishing that even at a funeral, ministers nowadays that are there when people's consciences should be most sensitive and primed to be faced with their own mortality are quick to jolly and jest about the reality of eternal judgment. This is willful ignorance. Well, this kind of insidious evil unbelief, it causes these first type of people in the privative unbelief category, to refuse the gospel when it's presented to them. Their hearts are hard, and they like it that way. They want it to stay that way. Well, there's another type of person in this category of those who have heard the gospel. It's been preached to them. It's those who have actually said, yes, I believe the gospel, but then they stop believing at some point in time. Those who forfeit faith after they receive it. This is the second type of person in this category who possess an evil, unbelieving heart. There's those out there who have never heard the gospel. They have an unbelieving heart. There's those who have heard it and because of their natural depravity and their own innate proclivities toward evil, and unbelief, they reject the gospel. Which one's the writer of Hebrews talking about? I think we're zeroing in now. 
on which one he's talking about. It's those who have heard the gospel, profess they believe the gospel, and for a while walk in the gospel, but then grow a heart of unbelief, which causes them to depart from the living God, an evil heart of unbelief. Now by this, I mean that there are some people who after they have been convinced of gospel truth, and they've even made an outward profession of faith, they go on and through various temptations, perhaps of the world system, the corruptions of their own remaining flesh, their own love of sin, or fear of persecution, or public condemnation upon them, they allow the initial gospel conviction that that led them to a profession to begin to wax cold and to wane and to wear off. And it grows so cold that ultimately they go on to cast the Christian faith off and their profession completely. And thereby when they do, they reject Christ, they reject His gospel, and they reject any hope of future retrieval. Consider in your notes, as you see from Titus 1.16, that such people do exist amongst the visible church. Here the Bible says there are some who profess that they know God, but in their works they deny Him, being abominable, being discontent, or I'm sorry, disobedient rather, and unto every good work a reprobate. This sort of false profession, or this sort of form of unbelief when dealt with in the scriptures is frequently warned against and is considered actually one of the most serious kinds of unbelief more serious than the person who's never heard the gospel look at second peter 2 20 and 21 this comes to the surface of how serious this sort of unbelief is after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the lord and the savior jesus christ They are again entangled therein and overcome. And the latter end of them is worse than the beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment that was delivered unto them. The reason this is considered so serious and warned against in Scripture is that while the rejection of the gospel in the first category of people and their own disposition of the natural depravity or those who have never heard the gospel, why indeed it is serious and they will be judged eternally for it, this kind of unbelief is much more serious because now we're going to consider that this one has two elements attached to this that all the former ones do not have. There's two elements to this person who begins to believe the gospel, professes they believe the gospel, and then they walk away from it. There's two elements that are unique to this type that make it so serious and so harmful. The first element, as you see in your notes, is what I would describe as the lack of recoverability, the lack of being recovered. This relates to the difficulty that there is of ever being recovered or rescued out of such a miserable condition of beginning to walk in the gospel, but then finding that there's no power in it, I reject it, I've tried it, I've thrown it in the trash can, no, I'll never go back. This person has, you could say, tried out the claims of the gospel. 
they have, you could say, made a test run of Christianity. But now they come to a point where they disclaim it and they said there's no power in the gospel. It's fake. And by doing so, they begin to cast a bunch of contempt upon it. It's validity. It's power. They cast contempt upon it. Others who say that they believe in it. uh, Against the church. So forth and so forth. Because of this and many other reasons, it renders their recovery, according to Scripture, very difficult. And it describes, as described later by the inspired writer of Hebrews, almost irrecoverable. They're not even uh, uh, able to be recovered. And you could kind of understand this. I've seen some people that when they come in the midst of the church, and some of them, brothers and sisters, for many years, and when they leave the church... Let me tell you, they really leave the church. <laughs> they usually, most of the times, don't leave the church and say, well, you know, that's true for you and that's good for you and in a peaceful way, I'm going to... No, usually they jump on Twitter. And the deconstruction that we see in modern evangelical today is a demonstration to this. What do they do? Buddy, they begin to wage war against the church, a war against the gospel, don't they? This you see, carries with it that second or that first element of what makes this so more serious. Now this person, while there indeed still is grace available for them, while indeed there still is repentance held out and held forth to them to humble themselves and come back and say, I was horribly wrong. Oh, now shrouded with their own evil heart of unbelief is their own pride now. How can I ever go back and after I've made such a to-do and such a case that there's no power in the gospel and it's not real and I've built and constructed all these different articles and, and podcasts and books and so forth and so on and I've told all my members and my family it was just a big joke. Now I'm going to go back and I'm going to say, oh, I was wrong again? Now you see it's almost impossible to retrieve these type of folks. But there's another element. Another element that makes this evil heart of unbelief so, so deadly. And it's the coldness of conscience. This relates to how this sort of unbelief puts a person in such a state of what we could describe as practical unbelief as to go on continually to sin against the Holy Spirit Meaning that under this element or this effect of unbelief, a coldness of conscience, the false professor begins to give liberty to all of their corrupt lusts, all of their affections of their depraved heart, remaining sin in their hearts without any restraints according to their perverse nature. And it begins to foster, it begins to harden, it begins to ignore the prickings of God's Spirit. And it becomes colder and colder and colder. The nature of such coldness of conscience, as I'm describing it, such inward apostasy, such inward hardening of unbelief, we must understand, we see again and again, perhaps in the church, our own experience when we begin to drift, that it doesn't happen overnight. It happens very gradually. It never comes quickly. But rather, it's descent into a state of becoming cold and hard in practical unbelief, you have an outward profession, but inwardly 
You fight, you ignore, you silence any time the Holy Spirit begins to bring things of sin to your conscience and you ignore it. You say, no, I won't believe. No, I won't obey. It comes to a point of coldness of conscience. This is the second type of person and the specific type of unbelief that they exhibited and that's being warned about against here by the writer, beloved. The consistent rejection of the truth of the gospel and its claims after it's been received, after it's been professed of. At this point, as I was studying this, I began to think about the seriousness of what it's talking about. Of this gradual, slow, hardness of heart, unbelief, that I myself at times am so prone to allow to begin to foster and be coddled and tolerated in my own life. And I could totally put myself in the sandals of this first century preacher. And I would urge you, dear church, be aware. May we all be aware, especially of this kind of unbelief. An unbelief which is not always evidenced by our outward turning away from the doctrines of God's Word. But by a practical inward turning away again and again and again from the ways of godliness. Let us remind ourselves afresh this morning, beloved, that the instruction of God's Word to those who name the name of Jesus Christ and say, I am a Christianos, I am a follower of Christ. We are called to depart from all iniquity. 1 Timothy 2.19 And those guilty under this kind of unbelief to continue in this kind of unbelief, However, while they profess to know God, as we cited in Titus 1.16, by their very works, they deny God. And Scripture warns of their final destruction. God forbid that any of us will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and He say, depart from me, for I never knew you. Why will they meet this in destruction? Because their God is their belly in Philippians 3.19. And whose glory is their own shame and who set their minds continually again and again on earthly pleasures. In other words, they're right at home in this world system. I like how one old, he's deceased now, but he had a little small Reformed Baptist church in Seattle. His name Pastor Paul Robert Martin. You've seen his notes. Listen to what he said in one of his messages about this. He said, For selfish reasons, such professors do not repudiate the gospel outwardly. However, inwardly, they will yield no obedience unto it either. They possess evil hearts of unbelief. And instead of departing from sin, they gradually more and more depart from the living God, all the while maintaining an outward profession. I believe verse 13 gives us great insight of how anyone could reach this alarming state of having an evil heart of unbelief. It's because of the deceitfulness of sin. How powerful, how powerful the defeat, deceitfulness of sin is. Well, what can be done? 
What can be done in light of these truths? Well, if you believe that you are a Christian, you profess to be a Christian, beloved, beware the very first motions of departure from the things of Christ in His Word, the things of His Gospel, the things of His holiness that's marked out for you as a follower. Just be aware of that. The first motions in your heart that begin to be okay with that. That's the first thing you can do. Keep watch. Take heed. The first symptom of your heart's defection and my heart's defection departing may be as simple as a rejection of some biblical doctrine. Or it may be in the rejection of a gentle admonishment from a spouse or from a brother or from a sister or from someone in the church. But take heed and beware. Because the more and more you say no inwardly, your heart grows colder and colder. When this does occur, pause and study. What is your current response now? How are you handling that when there is a defection or a departure from what your conscience knows to be true in the Word of God? Perhaps for some of us, we may be persuaded or we've convinced ourselves that such a defection or such a departing is not too serious and that it can be kept contained, it can be kept isolated from the rest of our Christian walk. And so we become at peace with it. We forfeit rest, yes, and Yahweh in that area. But we got rest in other places. However, hear me clearly, brethren. And I preach to myself here. If it is not repented of, it will, be sure of this, lead to further and further departures from the truth of the gospel until at last our consciences become cold, they become hardened to the claims of Christ upon us as His sheep and as His humble children that He has preached to us through His gospel. And at last, oh at last, we may be the ones who make shipwreck of our faith and of a good conscience as taught in 1 Timothy 1.19. Let us therefore today here take heed to this preacher. Let us take heed here to as the Holy Ghost saith, brothers and sisters, that we never fool ourselves in thinking that we can ever keep little favorite sins in check. No, no, no. Because that sin will, he's telling them, eventually blossom out, spill over. It will breed into other sins. Disobedience fuels unbelief. And unbelief is the fertile ground for disobedience and more disobedience. And if either one of those things are left unchecked, take heed, brethren, universally, Me, you, all of us, take heed because you are not guaranteed that there will not come a downward spiral afterwards. Sure, for some, the drifting and the downward spiral, we see it happens very quickly. But oftentimes, it's so imperceptible and gradual that it's not until even a man in the pulpit is hoary-headed, has no more hair on his head at all, 60 years, been in the ministry for 30 of them, and says, I'm walking away. I no longer believe. 
God, help us. God, use your word and your spirit to meet each and every one of us as he certainly did me in my study, beloved, to examine our hearts, the state of our hearts. Do we still believe? For our closing thoughts, let us consider Paul's warning as you have in your notes from the book of Timothy chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter 1. I'm sorry, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, where he says that some will depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. Paul here is describing not just false teachers, but also apostates who will depart from the faith in their doctrine who will depart from the faith and their morals and do it apparently as they're still professing to be Christians. Such believers, or we could say such professors, he is warning them to watch against. Watch against these people. Watch against their teachings. Watch against their examples. And when you find them, you reject their teachings. You reject their examples. They are false professors. Whether the case is that the old covenant Israelites who departed from God, which the analogy is being used a lot here in Hebrews chapter 3, or that of the professing new covenant Israelite to whom the Hebrews, the letter of Hebrews was written, the only security against departing from the one true living God is that by God's grace and by His preserving strength, we keep our hearts with all watchful diligence. I don't think, as we just stop and we've seen some of these New Testament Scriptures and we see here this warning in in this verse number 12, I don't think any of us could take the faith too seriously. It seems like the pendulum swung way the other way in the modern day evangelical world where nothing's taken seriously. And whenever a a, a servant or a man of God steps up and just brings these things to a service, oh, wow, that's way too much for us. I mean, I thought Jesus just loved us and everything's okay and I'm just on as a co-pilot and this thing's going to end up all right. We want to hear much of love, but we don't want to hear much of this, do we? Beloved, this is Scripture. There's many warnings in the New Testament for the church. Take heed and beware that you don't have an evil heart of unbelief. And where it is beginning to rise up, oh, take action. Today, if you will hear His voice. Let's end our thoughts by looking at Deuteronomy 4.9 because this was what Moses was telling the Israelites as he was going to remain in the wilderness and they were going to be allowed to go into the land of Canaan. Take heed to thyself. Keep thy soul diligently. Lest thou forget the things which thine eyes have seen and lest they depart from thy heart all the days of thy life. But teach them to thy sons and thy sons' sons. For the Christian here today, 
if in light of this passage you discover yourself in an awful state of practical inward unbelief, which can, very, I want to be very clear, which can lead to further and further departures from God, recall how in Mark 9.24, the father with the child who needed the help of Jesus told Jesus, Lord, Lord, help my unbelief. And beloved, this is the scripture that came to my mind on my study. Oh God, in my heart, I know, you know, there is unbelief. Forgive me, God, for I feel as though I can't do anything about it. But I know one thing, you and you alone are my only hope. Help my unbelief and help me never one moment become content with any evil of unbelief in my heart. And may you by your glory and grace use me to conquer this unbelief and be fitted better for heaven and used for your service in your kingdom. We don't have to walk out of here, brothers, defeated. Because every single one of us, I hope and I pray by the Holy Spirit's enablement or examining our hearts and saying, as I said, I have much unbelief. And I know that preacher's right. The word is true. This is serious. This stuff needs to be killed. And if not, I'm not guaranteed a ticket to the pearly gates of heaven on the back of a profession that's void of any reality. It's filled with complete disobedience, constant sticking my nose up at the the Spirit's pricking of my conscience, in deliberate, outright rebellion against God's Word. But I can't do it. No, you can't do it alone. I can't do it alone. This is why we're going to look next week is that we're all in this together. And we have God's Word. We have His Spirit. And with that church, we can say yes and we can say amen. We will make it to the end. We will. But not if we allow an evil heart of unbelief to be coddled, tolerated, or in the reading of Matthew 18 this morning, accepted in our midst. Let us with love Let us with caring, gentle hearts come alongside one another, brothers. I'm not here for a social club church. I'm not here for a community club. I'm here because I'm a sinner saved by grace. I need to grow. I need to persevere in the faith. And I hope and I pray that you possess that same heart. Because I'm going to need you to come next to me in the thick and the thin of it and remind me that when I want to give up, when I believe that my, because of coldness of conscience, coldness of heart, that there's no power in this, that you grab me by my collar and you say, brother, I don't know what kind of unbelief has settled down in your heart, but what is it? Because there's something there. And let's let the Word of God place His finger right on it. And let's deal with it. Brothers and sisters, by God's grace, with such humility, I'll open up my spiritual chest to you wide open. And I would say, bring the ointment. Bring the Word. Because it's our only corrective remedy. Sufficiency of Scripture. But as long as we cross our arms, 
As long as we say, no, you're not going to put those electrodes on me and shock me back to life. I'm settled down. I'm cozy content in my Christianity. I don't know that radical stuff you're talking about, preacher. Beware, take heed that you still believe because there is a reality in today's text that you've already possessed an evil heart of unbelief. Take heed, brethren. Take heed. Now for the unbeliever. I pray that in light of these things that we have been speaking about, that the Spirit of God would begin to reveal to you how that you have purposefully, you have heard the Gospel today. I have spoken much about the rest of God. I have spoken about His Son Jesus. I have spoken about the reality that He is with you. He would help you in your Christian walk. And if you refuse today, you are purposefully setting yourself against your God and against your Creator. You have placed yourself in the place of His judge. And it is in your own hatred toward your Maker and your own love of your own ways and your own sin that you will be held responsible for hardening your heart. It's hard and you want to keep it that way. If at all the Spirit of God is pricking your conscience to the reality and the conviction that you have indeed set your heels against your Maker and against His Gospel. No matter how many times you've heard it, today's the day you can hear His voice. Today's the day that you can lay aside such pride and say, I want to begin a new life in Christ. I want to set aside this wicked unbelief. I know the things my conscience is screaming to me that this is true. Come, repent, and believe upon Christ today. Follow Him. And His ways are blessed. His ways are beautiful. But they're not easy. Amen? They're not easy. Let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, O Lord God, we pray that You would meet us, O Lord, in Your Word that You would meet us in Your blessed supper and remind us, O God, that we need much of You. That, Lord, wherever unbelief is, by Your grace we are to meet it. We are to face it. We are to starve and to kill it. But, O God, we confess that we cannot do it without You. Lord, help us in our unbelief. Help, I pray, Lest I be deceived, anyone, Lord, who is listening to these words or would hear this message, help that brother or sister who's on the brink, O Lord, of giving up all belief in the claims of Christ, the blessings of His gospel. Help them, O Lord. Give them, I pray, your, your grace to see that as unbelief has grown so great in their heart, that it is not too late, that today if they would hear your voice, that there is still room for repentance, no matter how many times, again and again, that they have come and they have asked for your forgiveness. I pray, God, today that your word be true and that your spirit be powerful. Help, O God, your church. And may we take heed, O Lord, of any areas of our lives where unbelief may be. 
As we approach your blessed supper, we look away from ourselves and we look away at the the remedy of unbelief. And that is the work, the finished work of Christ. His promise is to give us rest. And oh God, we want that rest. We have great rest already in the reality of knowing that upon the cross, Jesus, He has secured it all. And that He does promise to meet us and to be with us as a faithful shepherd for when we as a wandering sheep go astray to bring us back into the truth, to grant repentance, to grant new and fresh obedience. I pray, O Father God, that You would help each and every one who comes to Your supper. Feed Your sheep, Lord. Bless Your sheep. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.